Thank you for listening today to our podcast here at Word of Life. We're delighted that you tuned in. And I pray that while you hear us talk, you hear the Holy Spirit speak. I know God's got a big plan for you. We're excited to be a part of that plan. Hopefully we will see you sometime soon, maybe even this weekend. Until then, we pray you have a wonderful, wonderful week. Well, good morning, everyone. Aren't you glad to be here at Word of Life Church? First off, can we give it up for our music team? What? I mean, how amazing was that? I'm always amazed during Christmas time at the level of talent that emerges out of our congregation. And here at Word of Life, you don't want to miss the upcoming weekends. Next weekend, we're having our big give, and we're going to take uh, the time to just worship the Lord, and we're going to end in song. It's going to be a very special time. We're going to take communion as well as we just give God thanks for what he's done in this decade and what he is going to do in the next decade, the best decade of our lives. Now, here's what I ask for our Christmas offering, and you guys know if you come to Word of Life, I never do these kinds of things, but I'll do it for this because it matters so much for the church, is I would ask for 100% participation. Uh, if you're in business, you probably heard of a rule called the 80-20 rule, and it just simply means that 20% of your customers equals 80% of your revenue. These are people who just come all the time, buy your product consistently, and it equals 80% of your overall revenues. So the thought process is, is you better take care of that 20%. Now, they say the same rule applies for a church, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people do 80% of the giving. And while that's not necessarily true for this church, it is true for most. And here's what I ask. We here at Word of Life Church are on the cusp of reaching this city like never before. God has given us a big God dream. Now, the projects that you saw on that screen are normally things we would just take out of our general fund. We would steward your tithes and offerings well, set aside money, and knock those projects out. In fact, most of the things that we do here at Word of Life, we do with those kinds of things. So we've already done some of the parking lot with just your general tithes and offerings. We already give uh, a ton hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions out of your general tithes and offerings. Uh, we've already remodeled our children's church out of your general tithes and offerings. But we have a strategic opportunity as a church uh, to take some of the money in our general fund and tackle a project that I think will absolutely accelerate what God wants to do through this church. And I'll tell you more about that later. Uh, but the only way to make that happen is for this campus to be taken care of uh, by the hand of God through you guys, uh, through you taking the time to give above and beyond what you would normally give and to help us tackle these projects. And so, you know, we want to tackle the parking lot. We want to redo our children's ministry. And we want to sow a seed over into India because every time you give to Word of Life Church, it's always try sown seed. And here, here's what I would ask, is if you have come to Word of Life Church at any time during this year, if you're a visitor, this doesn't count for you. But if you've come to this church for any length of time, consistently, I would ask for 100% participation from you. Get on board and help us take out these projects so that we don't have to take money out of the general fund in order to make that happen. We have over 4,000 people who worship uh, with us every single weekend. If just 2,500 people gave $280, 
we would see $700,000 be knocked out. So how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Now for me, I have a family of five, so that would be $1,400. That's a sacrificial seed for me. I'm not asking you if you have a family of five to give that, that's between you and the Lord. But what I am saying is I realize that my family makes up part of that overall 2,500. There are five that I represent. Some of you could do a lot more than that. Some of you say, Pastor Joel, I can't come anywhere close to that, and I understand that. I'm asking for those who can do more to do more, and I'm asking for those who can't do that to do something. And here's what I believe, that if we come together in unity and we come together and all of us playing the parts that we can play, we can see God do something special in this church, and you can also see God do something special out of our general fund, since we don't have to take the money from our general fund in order to knock out those projects. Now, once again, if you come to church here, you know I never do this. And the reason why I am, we don't even pass buckets. And the reason why I am doing this is I believe what we have on the cusp of this next year is so amazing and so wonderful that it absolutely demands this high level of ass from me. And if I did it all the time, I get how that would be annoying or irritating. Or you may wonder, well, all that preacher wants is my money. That couldn't be further from the truth. We don't major on it here. We don't pass buckets. You'll never hear me beg because I genuinely care for you more than I care for me. I genuinely care for you more than I care about yours and what you can do for us. But I believe we can come together as a church and do something in this season that, one, honors God for everything that he's done in this decade, two, sows a seed for all we want to see God do in the next decade, and three, honors everything that Word of Life Church has done for you, your marriage, your wife, your family, your business, whatever it may be, in this last decade and I believe if we all come together, that like we said last week, there God can command his blessing. That's next weekend. After that, uh, we're gonna, like I said, take communion, worship. It's gonna be an amazing service. I wanna encourage you to come out for it. After that, uh, the following weekend, we have our Christmas reduction, and it is going to be amazing. You don't wanna miss it. Now, because it is going to be so big, we are changing our service structure. We're doing a 10 o'clock service, a 12 o'clock service, and a six o'clock service. We're dropping the 8.30 and turning it into a six o'clock to give our production team more time to kind of put on the production but also to give you an opportunity to bring your family and friends who may be locked up at other places during those other service times. Uh, and when I say locked up, I mean like not in prison, although we pray they get out for Christmas. What a Merry Christmas that would be for you and your family. Uh, I should say maybe tied up with other things. Uh, <laughs> but you can bring them to the six o'clock service. And uh, the reason why we're doing that is because we know you have family and friends who might not come to a normal church service, but would come to our Christmas production since it is Christmas. And we're gonna do an aggressive altar call. And we're gonna believe to see God just move in the lives of those people who are here and draw them to him. Uh, so I'm I'm excited about that. So that's the weekend after that, December 22nd. Then Christmas Eve night, we are doing a service here at Word of Life. We have two service options on Christmas Eve, and it'll be kind of toned down without all the theatrics. It'll be simple uh, a candlelight service with hymns and Christmas songs and sing-alongs and the Christmas story. I really think it'll set the mood for Christmas. Then the weekend after that, we're taking a Sabbath because I'm asking my staff to 
to do so much for Christmas Eve and all of our volunteers to do so much on Christmas Eve and the Christmas production and all of those things. And I felt it was only right to give them a rest. So the, amen, let's try, let's give it up for the staff production team. So the last Sunday of the month is Sabbath Sunday, and if you come to church here, you can have church, but you'll have it by yourself without any of us. Then January 1st, we are having First Wednesday, and we're going to kick off the new decade, right? We're going to open it up with just a time of worship prayer, and I asked a friend of mine to come in and preach to us, so we got Robert Madu coming in to kick off a new decade. Isn't that neat? The very first decade, the very first day of a decade to have church, have Robert Madu just encourage us in our faith as we approach that brand new decade. And it's gonna be fun. So you don't wanna miss it. That is January 1st. We're in a series called At the Movies. And the movie for this weekend was It's a Wonderful Life. And I'll be honest, I never seen the movie when I picked it. <laughs> I just knew it was from 1940-something, so I figured it'll be wholesome and safe. Uh, and uh, we could show something from that. And so this week, I thought, you know, I better watch the movie. So Tuesday, I was exhausted, and I went to bed early, like at 8.50, and I woke up at 12.30, like wide awake. And I'm like, what do I do with my time? Uh, and I figured I'd watch It's a Wonderful Life. Halfway through it, I'm wondering, how long is It's a Wonderful Life? Like, this is a long movie. And I'm watching it, and the more I watched it, the more I got into it. Stayed up, watched it all the way through, went to sleep, and came and did Wednesday prayer. Uh, so uh, anyway, I'm watching the movie, and basically how the story goes is there's a man by the name of George Bailey, and he is an amazing man. Have any of you ever met just like an amazing man? Miss Pepe, my eyes are on you, babe. You gotta <laughs> lift that hand. <laughs> Have any of you met like an amazing person, like an amazing individual? Like George is the kind of person, like when you watch him in the movie, that you wanna be friends with, that you would love to, to get to know. He's got this infectious joy and this heart of compassion, and the movie kind of tracks him. And towards the, the, the middle of the movie, you see his life kind of enter into some hard times. And I think we've all been there before, right? All of us, we've had our life kind of enter into some difficult times. Maybe some of you are there right now. And just things aren't working out. George starts the, the film with like all of these dreams and none of them are coming true. He has all of these plans and none of them are working out. And he's at this place where he's trying to make life work, but nothing is working. His business is falling apart. His business associate commits this grievous error that could really hurt him and his name. And he's got this outside enemy who's trying to make his life miserable. And all of this stuff that was on the outside began to make its way into the inside. And he begins to change from the inside out. And this beautiful man, like this man who's so warm and kind and joyful, uh, comes and becomes this person who is very harsh. He comes home and his kids and his wife can see he's not right. And he's critical. He's judgmental. He's harsh. He's sharp. And everyone can see it. And he begins to take it out on his family, all this outside pressure that's made its way on the inside. He begins to take it out on everyone. And then he decides to take it out on himself. And he's going to commit suicide. 
that all of these emotions that he's feeling at life is now making him judge himself for the way he's acting. He figures, I'll be better off dead than alive. I've got this insurance policy. And all this stuff has played out in such a way that people have seen it. Like you've got all these people in the story who have seen it. His mom sees it. His neighbor sees it. His business associates see it. His children see it. His wife sees it. And I love what they do in the movie because instead of like gossiping about it or talking about it, instead of being like, can you believe George Bailey and the way he is acting right now? Instead of like doing all of those things that honestly most people do, right? Right? I mean, that's what most people do when you see people who are like, golly, what's wrong with them? And we talk about what's, you know, I wonder what's wrong with them. Are we judge them for their attitudes or, you know, criticize them? Instead of them doing that, they do something amazing. They pray and they begin to ask God for like divine intervention. Like they know that's not the George we know. Like he has changed, he is different. So they lift up their voice and they pray and ask God for intervention. And God sends an intervention that absolutely changes the course of the story. Now what I wanna talk about today is what happened in his life and just how scriptural and biblical it is. And so in order to do that, I'm gonna ask you to turn with me today to one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. We're gonna look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, if you brought a Bible, awesome. You can turn to it. It'll be on the screens. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's okay. Uh, you can uh, look at the screens and come down at the end of the service and ask any of our prayer team workers who will be down there ready to pray with you and for you for a Bible. They'll give you one. Romans chapter 12, and we're gonna look here in verse number two. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect in the will of God. Now, let's look at this together real quick on the screens. This is your Bible, and it says this. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. This word transformed means to make a complete change. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. Now, my kids had me do something that I still can't believe I did. You know what I did? I bought caterpillars. I bought them. I didn't find them. I didn't make them find them. I paid $13 and bought caterpillars off Amazon. Yes, you can buy bugs off Amazon. What's the world? Do you know you can make money off anything? I mean anything. Find some caterpillars, put them in a box, you're in business. $13, and I got these caterpillars, the thing that you could put, you know, the caterpillars in, and my children put the caterpillars in the thing, and we watched them change, have a metamorphosis, like literally transform before our eyes and from this like crawly, prickly little bug over into like this amazing, beautiful, Butterfly, this is the type of change. Do you know you can change? I don't care who you are, you can change. And not only can you change, when you read this verse of scripture, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it doesn't sound like that's optional to me. It's like, be transformed. It's like, uh, if you think about it, you know, pray about it for a minute, 
maybe. You can be. It's like, no, 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 no. Be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Somebody says, wow, you've just changed. Good. Good. You should be changing. You should be a better version of you right now than you were a year ago. You should be a better father right now than you were five years ago. You should be changing. You should be transformed. You should be altered. You should go from glory to glory. You should be changing. When I love the story of Joseph. One of my favorite points was we did this series about Joseph. You know, there goes this dreamer. And we saw that at the end of Joseph's life, he recognized his brothers, but his brothers did not recognize him because he had changed for the better so much. You can change. We know that. We've seen people change for the better. Have you ever seen anyone, though, on the other side change for the worse? You don't have to raise your hand. You may be sitting by them. Ha! But have you ever seen... Somebody changed for the worse, that they were transformed. Like George in the story. Like here you have this kind, compassionate, fun-loving dreamer. And he has changed into this person who is down, ugly, mean, harsh. How many of you know you ought to be sweet? You ought to be sweet. We can be sweet. You, you know what people, people like sweet things. They like sweet. I'm serious. Even as men, we ought to be sweet. We ought to be sweet to our wives, sweet to our children. Amen. We ought to be kind. Amen. So George is this guy, but in the movie, he's transformed into this guy who's like yelling and anything but sweet. Like this guy who is harsh and critical, he was transformed. Now, here's what's interesting. The Bible tells us whenever you have seen a transformation in the life of someone, something happened first. Before they changed on the outside, they changed on the inside. Before there was a change on the outside, something changed on the inside. Well, what changed? Their mind was renewed. Good or bad, their mind was renewed. This word renewed means like a complete restoration. Me and my wife right now, uh, are remodeling a half bath. And so we have come in and we have ripped out the old and we have replaced it with the new. The old tub's not there anymore. The old toilet's not there anymore. The old floor, it's not there anymore. There is something new in its place. And here what the Bible says is if you want to be changed, it says find whatever the world is doing and just do the complete opposite of it. That's the first step. It's like, you want to be successful? Just find what everybody else is doing it and just do the opposite of that. Do the opposite of what they do with their money. Do the opposite of how they talk to their wife. Do the opposite of what the world is doing. You'll be successful. But he says, past that, here's what you need to do. You've got to understand that a transformation on the outside begins with a transformation on the inside, that you have to rip out the old and you have to put in the new. You have to get the old out and you have to put the new in. And you see it in George Bailey's story. Like when you're watching It's a Wonderful Life, you see the thoughts on the inside of this man go from like, whoa, how blessed I am to have this wife. Whoa, how amazing it is to continue on my father's legacy in this business. Like, whoa, how great it is that I was able to take my college money and give it to my brother so he could go to college instead of me. Like, wow, how amazing that is into like, life is unfair. I can't believe this is happening to me. That should have been me. 
that should have happened to me. And you see all of these thoughts in this story begin to take place in George. And as these thoughts come into him, his life is transformed from the inside out. And the story gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And you know, the same is true with your life. Your life is transformed from the inside out. And before it gets better on the outside, it's got to get better on the inside. That life is like a flat tire. Your attitude is like a flat tire. You can't go anywhere until you change it. Thomas Jefferson said, you take a man with a good attitude, he'll fulfill all of his dreams. Nothing can stop him. You take a man with a bad attitude, nothing can help him. And you know what? It's the truth. You're changed from the inside out. I like what John Maxwell said. Uh, if you like to take notes, this is a wonderful note to take. If you don't like to take notes, still a wonderful note to take. John Maxwell said, Attitude is the thing that draws people to you or repels them away. Isn't that the truth? Aren't there just some people who you're just drawn to? It's like, oh, I love them, and you can't wait to see them. And on the flip side of that, aren't there some other people who like, woo, you kind of see them, and they didn't even say anything. You just went the other direction in the supermarket. Like, you just prayed they didn't see you. When you saw them, because attitude is the thing that draws people to you or repels them away. It's the librarian of your past. How you see the past has everything to do with your attitude. You could look back. That's why I love the song we sang, second song. All my life you've been faithful. Instead of seeing like all the tests and trials and being like, life has been so horrifically unfair. It's like I will see the tests and trials and realize my God got me out of every single one of them. I'm still standing and breathing today. All my life, God's been faithful. That's an attitude change. It's the librarian of your past. It's the speaker of your present. But here's the part I really like. It's the prophet of your future. I'll tell you what your future is like. Just let me see your attitude. I'll tell you the future of your marriage. Just let me see your attitude with each other. I'll tell you the future of your business. Just let me see the attitude of the people who are in it. I'll let me, I can see the future of your relationship with your child. Just let me hear you talk about them. Not even what you say, but how you say it because your attitude, it is the prophet of your future. John Maxwell went on to say this. He said, your current attitude is the number one predictor of your future success. Your current attitude is the number one predictor of your future success. Now, when I read that, I thought, here's what I'll do. I'll just ask you if you think that's true. Like, I don't know, because number one is pretty strong. Like, when you say it's the number one thing, that's pretty strong. But think about what he said. It's the number one predictor of your future success, that basically you could look at someone's attitude and determine whether or not they'll be successful based off of that one thing. You could, have you ever noticed like entire restaurants can have an attitude? And I'll take it a step further. Entire chains of restaurants can have the same attitude. It's just, it's just slow, it's just slow. It, you, it doesn't matter which one you go in, it's slow in every one. You know why attitude is contagious, but it's the number one predictor, your current attitude, 
is the number one predictor of your future success. Now, I began to meditate on that, and I asked myself, is that true? Because I don't want to just read information. I want to process and ingest information. So I began to meditate. Is that true? Do I believe that? And as I did, I I had this thought, and even spiritually speaking, uh, and I wrote it down. Here's what I wrote down. Your heavenly Father rewards those with a good attitude, and your heavenly Father corrects those with a bad one. Our heavenly father rewards people with a good attitude and our heavenly father, just like a natural father, corrects those with a bad attitude. How many of you know God loves you enough to correct you? In Hebrews 12, it says, if you're receiving correction from your heavenly father, rejoice in that, that you have a father who cares enough about you to correct you. Love will not let you walk off a cliff. It'll stop you, compel you, and draw you back. And your heavenly father, you know what? He rewards people with a good attitude, and he corrects people with a bad one. Think about, I could give you a number of examples, but think about this scripture. It's kind of been our golden text for the year, that God uh, will exalt those who humble themselves and resist those who come over into pride, that before there is a fall, there was pride first. What is that? It's an attitude. You remember the lepers? He had 10 lepers and he came to him. He's like, y'all go show yourselves to the priest. And when they went in faith, going to go do that, as they went, they were made whole and they're looking at themselves. They're like, golly, his healing power is like healing me. And one of them, one out of the 10, when he sees this, he's like, I gotta go back and give thanks. And he starts running back to Jesus. And when he sees him afar off, the Bible says, he hits his knees and lifts his hands and just begins begins to give thanks. This moves Jesus so much that he walks up to the man and he says, where are the other nine? He's like, I don't know. And he tells him, now I'll make you whole. See, when they were cleansed from leprosy, it just means that the leprosy that took all these things from them was now gone from them, and they could be reintroduced into society. But over the past however many years they wrestled with leprosy, they lost things, and God comes to this man in this moment and says, because of your attitude right now, I'll restore back to you what you lost. How many of you know God can restore back to you what you lost? I don't care what you may have lost. God can restore it back. But you know what enabled God to restore this, man, this man's life, put it back together? You know what enabled God to do that? His thanksgiving increased his capacity to receive. Do you know thanksgiving increases your capacity to receive? If, if you gave something to someone and after you gave it to them, they acted like they could care less about getting it. Has that ever happened to you? You know, it's a Christmas season. You can be honest. You ever got something from someone and it's like, I know I gave that to you last Christmas. Like, I know it. You regifted that to me. And you could tell that, you know, they could, they could have cared less about it. It didn't mean anything to, you, to them. That's an attitude, right? Does that increase or decrease their capacity to receive from you? It decreases, right? It's like if you don't even care about what I'm giving you. Why would I give you anything else? Why? Because we know attitude has a lot to do with the way we interact with people. And here this guy comes to Jesus and his thanksgiving increases his capacity to receive and out of this attitude, he now receives restoration. 
On the flip side of that, God will correct, like any good parent, will correct not just a bad behavior, but a bad attitude. Why would he correct the attitude? Because the attitude leads to the behavior. And so he comes in and he begins to correct this guy by the name of Jonah. You remember Jonah? God speaks to him one day. He's like, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And I always thought as a kid that, you know, when, when Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, that the reason why he didn't is just because he was scared because public speaking was my biggest fear. I mean, if you know, God's got a sense of humor. And I just thought he was afraid to go to Nineveh. But you know, when you read the book of Jonah, you find out that the reason why he didn't go to Nineveh was because he hated the people who lived there. That those people had been so hurtful and so mean towards Jonah, his people, and his family. He's like, I'm not gonna go preach there. And here's what he said. He said, God, the reason why I didn't wanna come here to preach was I knew that when I preached, they would repent And I knew that when they repented, you would be merciful. And I don't want you to be merciful to them. I want you to destroy them. So I'm not going to preach to them. That was why he didn't want to preach to him, because he knew the mercy of God. How many of you know God is full of mercy, long-suffering, and patience? And that's why he didn't want to go. He had a bad attitude. And he goes and he preaches, not because he wanted to, but God had a well spit him up (laughs) right on Nineveh's shores. And he just finally does it. He goes in there and preaches and he waits outside the city in the hot sun to see what happens. And he sees him repent and he sees God be merciful and he gets an even worse attitude and God makes this plant grow. The Bible's amazing. God makes this plant grow and it covers him. He's got this shade that he's sitting under and he's like, oh, this is nice. And the wind's blowing him, feel it, because he's in the shade, just sitting underneath this plant. And then that night, God sends a worm to eat the plant. And it kills it. And he wakes up, and he's mad about it, and he's just upset, and God's like, I sent the worm. He's like, why'd you send the worm? He's like, because I sent the plant. It wasn't your plant. Did you make the plant grow? He said, no. It's like, that's right, it was my plant. It's like the same thing is true with those people. Are those your people? It's like, no, Lord. It's like, that's right, they're mine. You didn't plant them, you didn't have them, I did. And what's it to you what I do with them? What's God trying to change in them? His attitude. Now, God's a God of love, and love has discipline in it. And here's one of the things. God, God led me to study discipline years ago. You know why? I have three kids, <laughs> son, I saw. Woo, you've got you've to discipline. Uh, you've got to do something. <laughs> something. And so I began to study how God disciplines, and I found some, some ways in which God disciplines. I just figured the way he does it, it'll all be the way I do it because I'm trying to be like him. And here's one of the things I found about God. I found out about God. Discipline is over when the lesson is learned. Discipline is over when the lesson is learned. God doesn't keep discipline, disciplining after the lesson's been learned. It's like, I'm gonna punish you even more. You know, no, but God also doesn't stop it. God also doesn't stop it until the behavior's changed. And you know what? A lot of us are just simply one attitude away. One attitude away from God being able to work in our lives, move in our lives. Here's what you're gonna have to decide. 
if you want to change it or not. God looks at attitude. I was studying on this. I'll close with this. I was studying about this, and I heard somebody make a reference to this. I didn't believe it, so I Googled it and read multiple different articles to verify what I read. Because how many of you know everything on Google is not necessarily true either? And so I, I read multiple different articles, even watched a video on YouTube and found out this to be true, that there's an instrument on an airplane called the attitude. Who knew? That there is an instrument on the airplane called the attitude. That's what it's called. And the attitude will tell you three things. It'll tell you if you're climbing, coasting, or crashing. Climbing, coasting, or crashing. Now, here's why this is such an important instrument and why a pilot needs to be instrument rated. Because apparently, when you get over into a place where you enter in heavy clouds or you go into a place where there's night and you're flying over a water or an ocean, you can't tell the sky from the ground. You can't tell the darkness of the sky from the darkness of the water. And you can get disorientated because what you see is tricking you. This is why JFK Jr., he got so disorientated in this airplane. He flew it straight into the water, like face first into the water and died in that that, that plane crash. It was because he was not instrument rated. So he thought he was fine, but actually he was crashing. So there's an instrument they put on the plane which tells you if you can't see outside, if you're in such a heavy storm that you can't see outside, it'll tell you whether you're climbing, whether you're coasting, or whether you're crashing. You know what it's called? The attitude. And when I heard that, I thought, you know what? That's so right. I don't know all about your life. And you don't know all about mine. Like, I don't know all that you're facing. Some of you I know better than others, but, but I don't know all about you. And here's what I do know. Like George Bailey, there's some mess that happens in life. Like, there, there are loved ones who pass away, and there's jobs that are lost, and there's sicknesses that are encountered, and there's just mess that attacks our soul and our spirits and our relationships and crazy things. And you have unfair bosses, and you have people who do horrible things, and we're in this world. But here's what I do know. I can look at one thing and I can tell you whether you're climbing, whether you're coasting, or whether you're crashing. I don't know everything about your marriage, but I can look at one thing and I can tell you whether you're climbing, whether you're coasting, or whether you're crashing. I don't know everything about you and your relationship with your children, but I can tell you by looking at one thing, whether it's climbing, coasting, or crashing. You know what it is? I can look at your attitude. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to do like David. And David would come to God and he said, God, I incline my soul. My soul will be inclined in you. I will make my boast in you. Did you know David wrote all of those amazing psalms, most of them, when he was in the wilderness? It is an absolute lie that tells you and I that in order for me to be happy, my situations have to be perfect. Did you know happiness is not based off of a particular set of circumstances? Happiness is based off of a particular set of attitudes. Paul said this in the book of Acts. This is my, my father and mother when I turned 13. They're like, you know what you need? I'm like, 
a, a video game system. They're like, no, you know what you need? I'm like, ah, phone. They're like, no, you know what you need? A job. And they got me a job working for Carl Ray Thompson. He poured concrete. I've never prayed so much in my life that summer. Like that summer, 13, I'm like, God, let it rain, let it rain, let it rain, let it rain. I'm like, Noah, send the rain, God. Because when it rains, it means you didn't have to go to work. And I'd get in that car with Car Ray, and Car Ray is one of the most joyful people I know. And he had a scripture that he would always tell me. It was Paul. And you know what he said? Acts 26 and 2. I think myself happy. I think myself happy. And I'd hear him quote that verse, and I'd thought, oh, Car Ray. And, you know, I just would think about it and laugh about it. But the older I get, the more I find out that verse is true. Do you know you can think yourself sad? You can think yourself right out of a relationship. They don't like me. They don't love me. They never call me. You can think yourself right out of a relationship. You can kill a marriage with your thoughts. As a man thinketh in his life, so is he. Your life is always headed in the direction of your most dominant thoughts. You can think yourself miserable. You can think yourself sick. You can think yourself broke. But you know what? You can also think yourself happy. You can think yourself into a praise. You can think yourself into a place where you're worshiping God. And in this movie, it's a wonderful life. You know how God changed his life? In the movie, you know how God changed his life? He sent an angel, and the angel didn't change his circumstances. The angel changed his perspective. And George went from, it's a miserable life, into a place where it's a wonderful life. And he didn't just look at his children, he saw them. And he didn't just look at his wife, he saw her. And he didn't just look at his home, he saw it. And he didn't just look at his job, he saw it. And when he saw it, he began to give thanks for it. And in giving thanks for it, joy began to rise up in it. And it changed his marriage, it changed his relationship with his children, it turned everything around in his business. All those things changed when he changed his attitude be not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind you know what it is it is a wonderful glorious blessed and strong life that God has given each and every one of us. It's time we think about it. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these amazing people. And I thank you, Father, for the joy and the strength that you give us during this holiday season. And Father, I ask that each and every one of us would have the courage to think ourselves happy. With heads bowed, eyes closed all over this place. If you're here and you say, Pastor Joel, I know I need Jesus. Do you know he loves you? He has set his love on you. He's waiting right here for you. No matter who you are, what you've done, 
No matter how many people are upset with you or how upset you are with yourself, Jesus Christ can redeem you, restore you, help you. But he can't do it unless you come. And if you're here today and you say, Pastor Joel, I want to come home. I want to come to Jesus. With every head bowed and every eyes closed, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you all over this place to do this one thing. I'm going to ask you to lift your hand right now if that's you. I want to come home. I want to come to Jesus. Hands going up all over the room. Somebody said, does it matter if I lift my hand? Sure it does. It's just saying, God, I mean business. That's like asking, does it matter that the prodigal son walked out of the pigsty? Of course it did. If that's you here today all over this place, just lift up your hand. Hands a sign of surrender. Amazing. Amazing. Now, everyone here, just pray this prayer with me. Repeat it after me. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, today I give you my life, my love, my affection, and my attention. All of my mistakes, my sins, my mess-ups, Father, I give them to you. And I thank you, Father. You're not judging me for nor condemning me. You're forgiving me. Though my sins were red like scarlet, you're making me whiter than snow. And I thank you, Father, that today, as you've forgiven me, I forgive myself, and I say boldly, this is the beginning of the best days of my life. In Jesus' name.